I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. Hey, welcome to Ditch Digger CEO. And uh, we are uh, going to have a lot of fun today. Quentin. Oh, yeah. I'm really, really excited, especially for the for the guest that we have today, man. He's one of your good friends. I'm really blessed to have him here. Uh, again, I, I'm a uh, fortunate guy because the one thing I have is, is some great friends that are, um, are, are, are successful because of the great things they do in their lives. And this is an example of one of my best buddies who uh, I met. John, John we met, uh, oh gosh, probably 14 years ago, I'm thinking, uh, YPO. We were both young leaders and uh, CEOs of our businesses and joined this cool group, uh, Young Presence Organization. And I get stuck in this forum and this uh, got this one little smart ass son of a gun boy. He's questioning everything about me and everybody around him. And he is tough as nails, man. Where'd this guy come from? And he introduces himself as this John de Blasio. John, uh, welcome to our show today. And uh, we're, we're excited to, to talk about uh, your rise in, in business and entrepreneurship and the fun things about John de Blasio. Uh, welcome, buddy. Well, thanks, Gary. And thanks for that recollection. I still have your emails where you uh, have me as uh, nicknamed aka the hammer yeah. uh, i'm not sure i i really deserve that but uh yeah gary it's been great uh, uh growing up with you and uh, uh being entrepreneurs together and watching you and the success of raybine group and uh and watching as you've crafted a great transition story with your children in the business and how you've um seamlessly integrated everything you do in your life, uh, and um, also uh, to get to know you and share all the way we have. So I appreciate you having me on the call and uh, are on the podcast today and look forward to this conversation. Yeah, and you know what? And they say, Quentin, I think you told me this. They, somebody, Quentin, one of my buddies here told me, you're, you're kind of going to be the uh, the average of, yeah. your, of your, what, how does that go? You are the average of the five people you associate with the most. Yeah, so so John is one of those. And, and uh you know, there's things that, that I, I feed off of off of you, John. And, and one thing is, my, you know, philanthropic stuff. And you know, we were always unorganized and how we gave and all that kind of stuff. And you're a person that uh, you, we, we kind of experience this together. But you're, you've been a leader philanthropically and, uh, you know, in, or, in organized giving. 
with a mission and all that kind of stuff. It's been, you know, it, it, it's something that's in, enriched our lives and it's been, you know, helped through you that we've done that. And again, when I, when I think about, you know, that, that rule, basically your, your, your best, you know, five, five people you associate the most, John's one of those people, right? So uh, if I can be anywhere near, uh, you know, what, what you're, you are as a human being and a, and a success story, then I'm, I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm going to be a real happy guy. Yeah, man. So, yeah, so, Gary, thank you. I, I feel the same in, in, in reverse. But so, so Quentin, how do you want to do this? You want to start from the beginning or you want to start from the end? Well, I actually, since, you know, it's good to hear this brotherhood that you all have, I would love to actually know how did you start? How did you start, you know, as far as just your background, you know, when okay. it comes to, I know so he you said wanna, you, you want me to start at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Than, yeah. So how, you know, how did you get everything up now, and going? going backwards? I'll start from the, from the beginning forwards. Okay. Well, that can, that yeah, can a little that. bit up, a little bit about your upbringing, John. Yeah, and, yeah and for Pennsylvania sure. Oh, and, I got and, it. Yeah. Easy. You know, I mean, for me, I grew up in a uh, very solid middle-class family in uh, a, a small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's, I, I look back on it now and I call it the land that time forgot um, because, uh, you know, you still have a lot of the same people that have lived there. Uh, and I think that's like most communities in the United States where people tend to uh, stay where they are and they tend to live in that circle, which is about 10 to 20 miles radius from there. And that's um, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but my mom and dad were both uh, and, and still uh, kicking at, at this time doing the same sort of thing that they've done all, all their lives. They've worked hard. My mother was a, 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 one of the first uh, CPAs, uh, women CPAs in Pennsylvania. She tells the story of her professors when she was younger, uh, giving her subpar grades to what she performed because they said, well, you're never going to need the degree anyways. <laughs> and uh, one of her teachers turned out to be the, uh, uh, the, the, the accountant for her largest client, they looked her up on, in the yellow pages in 1963 uh, when she had just started in her practice. And they said, what's this, a, a, an Italian woman CPA? They called her randomly, and she became their accountant. And when she went to hand over the accounting stuff from the previous accountant, it turned out that was the professor who gave her the subpar grade. Oh, so wow. That's kind of a – I love that story because oh. it shows, you know, that you, you you don't take no for an answer. You just kind of work on your vision, and you – you, you look forward and, and life rewards you in different ways. And my dad, uh, he had a, uh, his, his life has really been defined by the fact that he had a heart condition, rheumatic heart fever when he was a young man. And, uh, in every step of the way, you know, he was cheating death at uh, 12 years old. They put him in the hospital and they told him, you know, you're, you might not make it. And then, uh, uh, when he married my mom, uh, and he was, I think 30 and she was, uh, 32, uh, you know, they said, you've got a life, uh, lifespan to about 45 max. And, uh, they went off and had four kids together. Uh, and then lo and behold, we're on vacation and I'm a nine year old and, uh, his heart begins to fail. And this is when the advent of heart surgery was beginning to, to, to come about. And he had an open heart surgery in 1977. It was a three week recovery period. And then his next was 99, and then he got a new heart in 2005. His heart surgery to replace his heart had him in the hospital for four days. Wow. If you can imagine the advances that uh, health uh, treatment have, have given, and now he's 82 years old and a 15-year survivor of a heart transplant, which is, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers, pretty pretty extraordinary. So I, I've um, had those two things, and his his view of how he deals with the inevitability of death and his obligation for service in society really made an impact on me. And that's one of the reasons that I, 
created the charitable foundation that I did when I sold the company. And some of that ties back into, you know, how I became an entrepreneur, watching my mother in her early years manage all of the complexities of life together with the kids. I mean, she had a, a little speaker phone that would uh, squawk when uh, the kids squawked and that was in her office. And so we grew up in that crazy environment. So okay. when I look at my life, how I live now, how comfortable I am with a little bit of that chaos in the entrepreneurial world, a lot of that just comes from how I grew up. So I, have, I, had. So I have a question, John, um, if you don't mind. You know, one of the things that I've uh, known is, uh, I don't call, you call it a trend, you can call it whatever you choose, but a lot of successful people like you and Gary always had some type of start in entrepreneurship when they were young. I think for Gary, it was like he was a um, like it was a paper boy or something like that. Yeah. Um, did you do what was one of your first, you know, jobs as far as grit to kind of show, you know, like, hey, man, this is kind of what I want to do when I get older um, from well, the perspective think, of well, having your own. You know, here, here's the thing. One thing you got to know about Gary Raybine and I think most entrepreneurs is they have at heart a, a competitive spirit. They like to win. Yeah. And that that's that's where I think entrepreneurs are um, and the on a percentile basis at the top 1% of society, they really live to win. Now you can put the, you can put a wrestler out there and he can become, and he can fail as an entrepreneur. Um, uh, you know, you're going to put a state champion wrestler out there. He can fail as an entrepreneur. So that's not all that, that, that it requires, but it is a, a key component of an entrepreneurship is that you, you like to be competitive. You like to win. And I was always that way. And I had that in my, in, in my, in my sports that I participated in, but also, uh, when I did, uh, you know, uh, fundraising for the Boy Scouts, I always wanted to win. And, uh, you know, when I, I began to do, you know, lawn service things like that, I took a job. I'll never forget working in that pizza shop. It was I, I lasted at McDonald's for a month <laughs> at the age of 16. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't think I can make this. And I went over and I found a job working in a pizza shop with this young uh, entrepreneur, Mike. Mike's pizza pizzazz. And, uh, you know, he, he was one of those guys. Let me, let me run the store if he wasn't there. I mean, 16 years old, you know, and, uh, he and his brother and him ran the place. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, and, and watching that and being part of that was, uh, was a lot of fun. And so I picked those things up, but I think, I think really in your early days, you know, having an appreciation for how you can win making money, and having an appreciation for wanting to win um, are, are the things that that define, you know, sort of that an, antecedent to entrepreneurial success uh, when when you're younger. And I think the other aspect of it um, is a little bit of perseverance. And perseverance is only something that you learn through a, a bit of pain and suffering. Um, and uh, you know, that came to me, um, I think, partially because I wasn't natural in academics. And I also was a little bit emotionally mature, uh, immature, and I had to, I had to, to overcome my own, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, insecurities to be able to, to, to achieve. Uh, and I think that's a battle that everybody has. It's called their personality. And if you don't understand your personality, then you don't understand uh, the person you talk to most in life, and that's yourself. And so huh. I, I like to uh, imagine myself back in 10th grade making a decision that I wanted to be successful and I wanted to go to West Point and set myself off on that track uh, and, uh, and remembering that it was a decision. Uh, and uh, I, I think that, that type of uh, understanding of my own per perspective per uh, individual 
um, uh, challenges in my personality and how I uh, squared up with it, I think that's also been uh, a piece of my success. And by, by the way, my failure, uh, failures in life, um, and they, they tend to come around personality rather than the perseverance and the competitiveness and the, and the intelligence quotient. So um, I think all those three things, right, that competitive spirit, that interest in winning and making money, and second, and lastly, just understanding my own um, strengths and weaknesses as an individual, they were all apparent when I was younger. I don't think I knew what I know now. Obviously, you don't. That's um, um, a word I didn't have an appreciation for back then called wisdom. Uh, but it, it is, in retrospect, uh, what, what I think gave me, uh, you know, the, uh, or defined me as an entrepreneur in the future. So, John, John uh, isn't it, uh, it, it seems like, like a perseverance, competitive drive, I mean, these are common elements of, of, of we see in successful people. Um, and, and I've, you know, you, you, are, you exude these. But when you think back, I mean, does... You know, negative statements that drive you, just like your mom, to think of your mom, you know, and, and a professor that she probably respected, basically saying, hey, yeah, you know, you know, she's going to get this degree. We'll make sure, you know, she's going to pass because she's smart enough, you know, but she's not going to be, can't be an A student. She's a woman. She'll never get a job yeah. anyway, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. that, those things that are ingrained yeah. in your mom. Your, ah, there's your, a hundred of them. Your dad, of course, there's yeah. there's many of those for your mom, right? Then your dad, right? Hey, this this kid's not going to live a long life, but you know, let's 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 uh, do the best we can for him. Hey, this guy's never going to probably have a family. His life expectancy is not that long, and you know, on and on and on, and 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 that that's ingrained in him as well. I mean, he's 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 a he's a survivor. He, he's successful survivor. He's he's a, he's a he's a warrior, man. And 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 again, so that's that's definitely part of your part of your fabric as well. Um, what yeah. anybody anybody tell you you couldn't do it, John? I know as a young well, guy, your vision was West Point. That's a that's a that's an amazing vision for a guy that struggled academically as a young kid. Uh, you know, what, anything motivates you to 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 push you along a little further, a little faster? Yeah, Garrett. So I have had the the naysayers, the doubters, and for sure. Uh, and I can remember my AP American history teacher, Mr. Sopko laughing at, that I was going to take the AP exam. And then when I told him I got a five, he, he, he kind of fell off his chair. Um, it was one of these things where, you know, I think, so my first two years of high school, I ended up, I had a 2.6 uh, GPA. My last two years of high school, I had a 3.9 GPA oh, and awesome. I was given an award for uh, the most improved GPA in the high school that I was in. That's the reason that I got into West Point. Most of that came about because uh, I had uh, people that were, I don't want to say not cheering for me, but I think were doubting. Um, and I, my parents were never that way. They were just anxious. Mm. Uh, but, but I had, I, I did have a, um, and I, you know, I, I, I think I had coaches that believed in me. Jeez, um, ah, I got to tell you, it kind of brings me back. But uh, I, had, uh, I had really great coaches that believed in me. And I don't think if it was for those coaches, like Joe Batista was a guy that, uh, you know, he put me on the, um, uh, the junior Penguins hockey team. I never had a shot at that. And he just saw a lot of heart in me. Put me on that team, changed my life, right? That's because awesome. yeah. I was not really, uh, you know, tact, tact, uh, t- size-wise, I was too too little. And, 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 and technically, I probably wasn't as good as some of those other kids. But he put me on the team because I had a lot of heart. And I, you know, and I grew into that. And uh, both physically and otherwise. But if it wasn't people like Joe, I probably would have stayed where I was. Um, So I had coaches that helped me 
to believe in myself and gave me that ability. But, um, you know, it was really not much help from, from my, uh, you know, my academic, uh, uh, leadership there. I did have a great counselor who always told me, John, you're, you're, you're not hitting above your weight. You need to hit. He was, he also happened to be the, 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 the academic rep for the, for the wrestling team. And that was also something that I do remember, but it was, uh, I, I like to, to to think there was just a, um, uh, my, Michael Gerson, I think is the guy that uh, wrote the speeches for, for George W. Bush. And he said, you know, what we have to overcome is the soft bigotry of low expectations. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of watched that in my life where people have low expectations for you and you just live up to them. Right. And so I didn't, I was able to have others who had higher expectations for me that made me, um, believe in myself. And that, that's why, uh, I think those mentors are so important. So yeah, there are detractors. There are people who doubt you. Um, I had, I once had a Colonel in the army tell me, Hey, you know, they tell me that you ought to be somebody that we, we, uh, uh, um, uh, really, uh, uh, should, uh, uh, look to and, and work, uh, work with on certain things. And he said, you know, and they say to me, you should, De Blasio's great. He doesn't, he thinks outside the box. And he said, but you know what? I tell him, you don't even know where the box is. So <laughs> you need to start on that. John. It's kind of funny because you'll get people that are like that, that nudge you hard and, uh, and give you a little direction. But, but it, you have to, to take, um, those expectations and I think, uh, and, and, and build your own and, and the mentors that'll help you get over those things are the ones that, you know, kind of randomly come into your life and believe in you because of the, the, uh, the points of perseverance and drive and the intangibles they see in you. So a successful business leader like yourself would agree that coaches and mentors change your life. Absolutely. And, and, you know, here's the thing, Quentin, coaches and mentors are always there. They're always out there. You just have to know who they are. You have to accept it. You have to be willing to buy in and, and timing is, is so critical. They're there. If you know, and at the times in your life where you accept that, that, that sort of guidance and that, that help and that, and you take those risks, then you, you win, right? Yeah, man. But they're out there. In a lot of cases, people don't even notice it. Absolutely, John. And I think something you've done, and I, I, I love doing, and I'm doing it every as much as I can still today in my life, is reaching out to the, the, the world's best minds to be mentoring you, right? If you know, if you know you're going to be involved in something, um, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to search for the, the best mind you can and, and ask to, ask to mentor you. Right. And that's something that yeah. a lot of people are yeah. afraid to do, but man, I'm telling you, it, it, you know, th- great things continue to happen in, in, in my life and lives of people that I know they're not afraid to reach across the, the, the globe. If they think there's a mind that can, that they can share with, that's going to, going to push their game to a new, new world. Right. I will say, Gary, my, my view on mentorship has evolved. I, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good mentor to a lot of, uh, young business leaders and others. And I try to do that, but what I've learned, and I think you probably, uh, see this too, because we come from that YPO, um, sharing experience is that, you know, advice is not, um, always the best, uh, way to, 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 to impart wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's about shared experiences and it's about empathy. And if people understand, you know, what they're going through, uh, they'll be open. Uh, and if you share it in a way, which is, uh, personal and it, it exhibits that empathy, then they, 
they can hear. So I always try in my mentorship to 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 share uh, experiences. The other thing um, that I think has been one of the uh, factors that I see entrepreneurs um, uh, failing on is o- over relying on 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 mentorship. Uh, you know, mentors don't run businesses; mm-hmm. you do. Uh, leadership comes from being open to ideas and finding the best ones and using those. It, mentors can give you ideas, but they can't lead your business. Um, and what happens, I think, oftentimes is young young entrepreneurs are given the impression that they need a lot of help, and there's a lot of people trying to help them, and then they surround themselves with a cacophony of voices, and then they're confused. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'm watching it in the business that I'm involved in right now. Uh, we set up a, a board of three, four people uh, around a small business with a new CEO who had uh, a, a little bit of a, a confidence gap, and he filled it with a whole bunch of deferred, uh, de- de- I want to say deferment. He he deferred to a lot of the members of the board, and as a result, he was going in three different directions mm-hmm. at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, one of the failure modes in the in the business that I'm working with now was that we surrounded the CEO with too much advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or or alternatively, he didn't know how to manage that advice. So a good CEO and business leader will have people who can contribute, but will know how to accept and manage that advice. It's never uh, wrong to take uh, someone's ideas uh, and not use them if you don't think that fits with your intuition. But you got to have direction and intuition to lead. Absolutely. So, John, and I remember back when you and I were learning about mentorship because, you know, YPO is a great place for this, a great format for this where – you know, we talk about you're sharing experiences. You're not telling anybody how to do anything, right? You're not, you're, it's, it's not uh, you should, you should. It's my experience is this. Exactly. It, it gives right, people, Gary. it gives the mentor, mentee the opportunity to choose what they think is best for them and their paradigm, right? Right, and, and, that's uh, right. Quentin has Quentin is, uh, done a great job. Quentin you know, knew a, little, a lot about mentoring before him and I partnered, but learned a lot more through my experiences and our experience in YPO. I brought all that stuff to, to Quentin, and Quentin runs a, you know, true mentors by that, those theories, right? And, and you're exactly right, John. Too much mentoring, if it's you should, you should, you should, could be a dangerous thing. If it's sharing experiences like we, we all know nowadays, that's the, the best mentoring. You're just sharing experiences. Never, never put any pressure on that mentee. That mentee, believe, mentee always believes the mentor's time is worth, worth gold. And so, therefore, they want to they want to satisfy them in many ways and, and, and try to do what they're asking them to do if they're telling them to do something right. compared right. to sharing experiences. Happens, yeah. What happens is when you have a, a mentor who's <clears throat> got a little gravitas and, uh, and they say to you, you know, uh, why don't you do this? Well, you know, uh, you, tend to, you, you may tend to do that, but you're there every day. You're running that business and you just deferred to somebody um, – and maybe what you do is is not the right thing because of that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just had an example of that. Uh, you were hiring a financial person in this business, and the uh, one of the, the the mentors for for us here said, you know, I would would you rather have this as an alternative? And uh, we we picked up the phone, had the good conversation about what what the options were, and we decided, you know, we were going to stick with the path we had. But that's good input if you know how to manage it. Yep. And the confidence to manage mentors is really tough to impart on an entrepreneur. They have to um, come in with with a, a confidence, but also an understanding that 
um, it, it's it's uh, still their responsibility to make the right choices. Exactly. Hey, John, I, I want to make sure we get to a lot of stuff. There's so much cool stuff about my buddy, John. I want to make sure we get there. And, and uh, you know, the West Point the world, I mean, if there's one thing I'll regret in my life is never n- not doing not not you know serving our country in the military. I just think it's a it's a it's a gift to to our country for anybody that does this. It's amazing service to to the our country and the world to serve in our military. And you did it at the highest level and and, and uh, want to get to there. Want to go to West Point. You know, small 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 percentage of people that apply actually are accepted to West Point. I know some great great people, uh, amazing leaders today that didn't get accepted to West Point. That were strong academically, strong leadership that didn't get there. Right. And I know a few like yourself that did, and uh, and, uh, and uh, I'm proud of my buddy that you you know you did what you did there and all that. But I want to hear I want the, I want everybody else to hear about yeah, that. Yeah, man. Because I I'm not gonna lie to you, John. When I saw West Point, I was like, that's the elite of the elite. You know, I was like, oh, holy cow. Yeah. You know, I can't wait to you know I can't wait to salute, and I got to learn how to salute the right way. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? I, no, I appreciate that. I think my service history is something I'm very proud of. Um, uh, the West Point experience. Uh, you know, I mean, an application uh, at this time, if I applied, I probably wouldn't have gotten in. Uh, that was back before people figured out how to game the system on, you know, I had been all, I had all these uh, uh, leadership markers that they appreciated, which other schools hadn't really kind of, kind of figured out. But nowadays, everybody wants to, you know, you'd be the president of the student body, you have, you know, this, this, and this, and they, they kind of collect these badges. Back then, I just did it because I I enjoy doing things like that. And they happen to be uh, looking for those type characteristics. And therefore, you know, my um, uh, I was able to get in. And uh, I remember there were two two classes of they called it rock math uh, because you had to have a, a higher level calc than I had taken calculus than I had taken in high school. So we had, um, I think, 40 out of 1,400 uh, uh, kids had this uh, a problem where we had to, it only done pre-calc. And so, you know, and their, their, their single task was to make sure that we, we, could, we, we, were, we were basically hazed through that first semester. You're not you know, supposed to say you, that. You were, the four, <laughs> you, you were the 40 kids who didn't have the right math to get in here. And so, and I still, this is a funny story. Uh, I had a professor, Captain Ostendorf, Brian Ostendorf, and uh, uh, that first semester in that math class, and I'll never forget it, they make you take boards and do the things on the board, so you have a piece of chalk and you have to go through the, the problem, and everybody's, you got to keep your eyes straight, and it's always, you come in, you sit down, bam, take boards, do your thing, and they do this to you every every day, it was always pop quiz, whatever, and it was, that's part of the, 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 the torture, and and they, and they would overload you, right? So you had 22 credits as a freshman. I mean, who does that, right? And then they were getting you up at 6 in the morning and that kind of thing. So that talk goes back to the perseverance. And, you know, and I was also not exactly um, – uh, I could have been determined as brash maybe. So I didn't, you know, know what to, to say in, in the right way, let's say, to kind of stay below the radar. So I, I did draw a lot of fire. But my my math my math professor Ostendorf, who tortured me for six months, I walked in the room uh, to a business meeting with a new cl- with a client that it was our it was a fifty million dollar client for us. It was big, URS uh, was the engineering company. We were doing all the work with them in Cutter. This was in my business in Sallyport. Um, you know, twenty twenty five years later, I think. So two thousand eight, 
I walk in the door, and there is Brian Ossendorf, Colonel Retired 1H, standing there in front of me. I almost fell over. I began to get, I, I literally, it was like PTSD. I was standing there. I didn't know what to say. I was like, oh, my God, Captain Ostendorf. I, I began to kind of get all, all frantic. And they were like, what's going on? I go, yeah, he tortured me for six months. I'm like, yeah, do you remember me? He goes, no. He goes, I don't remember. I go, but come on, go back. And so he literally went back. He looked at my grades and stuff. But, but I mean, I that, that experience at West Point where they really did, um, you know, uh, work you over a bit, gave you a, a sense of, you know, how do you, you got to persevere through a lot. And I think the other aspect of it was, um, the, uh, the camaraderie, uh, you know, I still have, uh, from my experience there, um, really a great group of, 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 uh, people that you, you, you know, you carry you through life. And I think that's distinguishing from a different university experience. Um, you know, where you're typically, you might have that with some fraternity brothers or not, but you know, you, you just really are all in that, cauldron and, and most importantly after you go out of west point you go to become a lieutenant in the army and you go to ranger school and you go to desert storm or in my case i was in korea uh, on the dmz watching that occur and you know and then there's people in life that you run into in the military that in that young period of time or later on if you don't stay in they they go on to become great warriors for what we um uh, for defending america and our interests and for example my one of the uh, captains is, when I was a lieutenant was, is now Scott Miller and he's over in Afghanistan, a four star taking charge. And he had been the, the, um, you know, the director of the joint special operations command and, uh, you know, one of America's greatest warriors. So I had the privilege to serve with some of those people. And yeah. And so, and then obviously as I was going through my life, I felt like the military was a good, uh, community to be, be a part of. And I always, felt like that was my, uh, extension, my service. And so I, I like that. Um, uh, and, uh, so, so and, question, and I stayed in. So question, John, one of the things that I know about the military, um, or should I say that I respect a lot about the military is that people, um, definitely not in addition to them fighting for our country, they're big on loyalty and they're big on discipline. Um, did you, and, and when I mean discipline, discipline in themselves necessarily and, and how you all implement that, um, have you, I'm assuming, have you utilized some of that in your everyday life as far as when it comes to business and just even yeah. to today? Like, how you know, did you so, um, correlate yeah, you know, that to I'll, now? I'll take you through that. You know, so, I mean, I I think um, the way that people perceive discipline uh, in the military is a little different and what it actually is, at least in my experience. And I, you know, I grew up with a healthy disrespect for bureaucracy. And one of the reasons I left active duty as a lieutenant was because I felt like I could organizationally see where I was going to go in my career. And I wasn't, I wasn't super excited about how that would play out. It was after the first Gulf War. And so I kind of thought, well, there's never going to be another opportunity to do that again. <laughs> who, who knew? But um, it, so when I was a young lieutenant, I kind of looked at it and I said, hey, there's a bureaucracy here. I'm not sure I want to be a part of. And, but as I grew into it, as I stayed in the reserves and I began to participate, I, I learned that what there is in the military is a, a, a an appreciation for, um, how, how to do things and process. Okay. And, and that's what you get. You know, there's, there's a, uh, a real religion around the standard operating procedures and how you do things, because if you do them 
the right way, you're going to get it right 90% plus of the time. And there's also a very healthy respect for how to improve. And I don't think people understand that one of the things that you start with in the military is an appreciation for the after action review as part of what you're your 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 um, uh, as part of what you do as an organization and as a leader, so you're always looking for people to reflect back. How do we do this better? Uh, and and so as a young lieutenant and a, a junior officer, and then later as I became more uh, invested in my career and, and and eventually retired as a lieutenant colonel, that's what I really learned from the military was a real appreciation for 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 how important process can be, but also an appreciation for how you challenge uh, and, 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 and work within the organization uh, to improve it. And uh, I remember as a young uh, ranger candidate, uh, I was uh, uh, on a patrol and they gave me the, uh, uh, the second in command for that. Uh, and the um, young patrol leader had uh, an idea, which was quite honestly, uh, you know, cockamamie. Uh, to how we were going to deploy along this patrol. And I, in the brief prior to our, 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 our completion of this, or, or uh, to our um, implementation of this plan, brought up that I thought this was not a good way to do this. We, uh, when we finished, uh, we did an after-action review, and the instructor uh, said, uh, Ranger de Blasio, come up here. And he said, what was your problem here? You gave this guy a lot of about how he was giving this uh, plan. And I said, sir, I thought it wasn't a good opportunity. I didn't think it was a good deployment, so I made my, my comments, but, you know, we went with the plan. And he said, you're going to go. Everybody else failed. And I learned that day as a wow. young lieutenant, that was the organization that I was really proud to be a part of. Before we went to war in 2003, and I'll fast forward to that, I was a young major, and I'm at the 18th Airborne Corps headquarters doing a VTC with CENCOM forward in, in Qatar, and uh, General McNeil was saying to us, I know that in the next few days we're going to be going over the berm, and uh, we haven't given all the guidance we need to, our, our, to, to, to junior officers, and they're going to be making policy for the United States of America, and, uh, and, uh, but I'm comfortable that we're going to be doing the right things. Now, General McNeil was a little bit off on that one, I can say from <laughs> history, but I, it, it is the culture of the Army and it is the culture of the U.S. military, and I don't think it's something people appreciate, that it is one of those places where they look to um, the right ideas coming forward to make the right plans and execution. That's why our military is different than other militaries. It, it's a military that encourages um, uh, appropriate dissent and it encourages uh, those uh, leaders to be uh, coming up with the right ideas. So that's the military I belong to, and that's the military that I think uh, I bring with me into my uh, business career as well. Uh, and it was also the military that gave me the freedom uh, when I was in Iraq and, Af and, and Jordan to do the work that we did uh, with a relatively uh, a good range of, uh, um, a good degree of freedom and flexibility. Um, in fact, extraordinary, as I look back on it with the the, the amount of things we were able to accomplish. So, so, so John, uh, when you, when I look at the, when I, I know, you know, you've, your story, uh, where, where you, I've heard your story and I want you to reiterate on that when you made the decision from being a, you know, from a, a lifetime or, or a career soldier, right. To a, to a, to an entrepreneur. Um, can you tell about how that, that trend, how that happened? What, how those thoughts, uh, 
uh, came about, and then and then how you made that uh, de- decision to say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. I'm not. This is not something. Sure, the rest sure. Of my life. I was. Um, so here, here's another uh, life point. You know, I I was 24, uh, 25, come turning, um, when I decided to leave active duty. I stayed in the reserves and go to graduate school, uh, and uh, get married, have a baby, and a few few months later, all that bought into, and uh, big change. And, uh, but I decided, you know, at the, even at that time, I wanted to have a business career, right. And that I wanted to be an entrepreneur down the road. But, uh, for me, what I thought was the right path, again, going back to that, you know, Sun Tzu said, you know, if you know yourself, uh, you win half your battles, know your enemy, you win half your battles, you know yourself and your enemy, you win hundred percent of your battles. And I think that's part of my learning in high school as well was, you know, recognize your weaknesses, understand where your deficiencies are. And I wasn't, I knew it at the time. I wasn't ready to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I, I needed to have, uh, some experience where I would learn. And I went into a leadership program at General Electric, which was top flight, gave me the best sales skills training that I could ever hope for, taught me how to be a, um, a, a technical sales leader and understand technical marketing and gave me the framework from which I've been able to, uh, you know, build, build my business career, uh, taught me, uh, again, uh, you know, the, the benefits, uh, in many ways of process. Um, I felt like, uh, GE appreciated, uh, caged entrepreneurs and I felt like I was one of them. So for me, that was, uh, uh the right choice. Uh, and I left GE in uh, March of 2000. It was NASDAQ 5,000. And I went from $130 billion uh, revenue company to $130 million company. Of course, these are things that you look back on and you kind of have to chuckle. But I went to a, a tech startup and I was the senior vice president for business development and later in their international operations. Um, and I was working in an environment where Jack Welch was CEO to an environment where there was a gentleman named Dale Kutnick. And Jack Welch was a you know, buttoned up hard charger Here's the way we do it. Process is uh, above people, but we need people that will, uh, you know, work as uh, around bureaucracy to get things done. Uh, to Dale Kutnick, who said to me, I get high every night, just one joint, because <laughs> it takes the ego out of my decision making. And I thought, wow, this is a publicly traded company. He's an interesting CEO. He's got a different background. Uh, it's all people here. And so it was all people and no process. And the egos were everything. And, uh, and it was NASDAQ, like I said, NASDAQ 5000, and it was right after that, the bubble burst, and here I was, stock was 36, I owned a, de- you know, a decent chunk of options and everything, and then uh, suddenly it was three, and we were running around shutting down uh, distributorships, converting them into uh, subsidiaries around the world. I-, I was doing things that were extraordinary, considering I was, you know, uh, I think not even uh, 32 years old, and um you know, here I was, fresh face, showing up in Paris. Hey, we're going to take your business away from you, and we're going to because you can't do this and this, and we're going to re, re, restart it as a uh, as a uh, as a subsidiary. And you know, we did that five or six times, and I'm still friends with the people that we did that with. Um, but that that experience, that that journey, put me in the seat to be able to go out and put basically 80% of my liquid net worth into a real estate business, which I did on the run up to go to war in 2002, knowing that we were going to go to war in Iraq, highly likely, and that my unit was going to deploy, but gave me 
the confidence to go out and, and create an entrepreneurial business, which was a decision I made and we went ahead with. And then when I came back, the company I had worked had been sold. So then I was uh, confident enough and ready, I thought, uh, to, to really be an entrepreneur. And that's where, you know, luck is, uh, as I define it, is the intersection of, uh, of, of opportunity and preparedness. Yep. And I was prepared for that opportunity and willing to take the risk to do it. I think entrepreneurs choose too early on the preparedness scale. They think they're prepared because they're programmed to think they're prepared, but they aren't. And I felt like that experience learning at GE and at Metagroup where I had to take the confidence of shackles of process, right? I had a healthy respect for process by this point and, impo- and impose it on myself in a, in a zero process business that was all about people. And that, that taught me how to be the entrepreneur that I, I was ready for in 2004 when we created Sallyport. So I like to look at my career as a journey. And I think that was opportunity combined with preparedness. And I don't, I, I think, um, I, I think preparedness was the key thing there. Uh, but of course the opportunity has to be the one that you're, you're willing to take the risk to, to seize. Um, and John, I, and I think a failure, failure mode for, for entrepreneurs is that they think they're prepared a little bit too early. John, that's really good. I, um, and I, I'm glad you said that because I've always heard success is where preparation and opportunity meeting. You kind of gave it like a little curveball, like, yeah, but you know, the experience is really important. I want you to, if you could, um, cause one of the things that I was excited about when, you know, as I was, you know, getting to know more about you is Sally Port Global Services and how you grew it from one employee to 1900 and, ex- and ultimately had revenues of 200 million. And I know this might be a loaded question, but how did you do that? I think most entrepreneurs, that's a vision. Most entrepreneurs want to have something and they want to say that I created this, I co-founded this and grew it to this conglomerate. Um, so if you can, you know, maybe expound on that for a couple minutes or so, just how did you get it to that yeah, point? I, you know, you know, for me, when I came back, uh, I, there was a, a couple of partners that we, we kind of gathered together and we said, let's try to make this uh, opportunity into a, 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 a business. So uh, we, we set out to do that. Now, we didn't have a three to five year business plan that said what we were going to do. Um, we had an idea uh, and we, we, we adapted pretty quickly on that idea into uh, direct contracting opportunities. We had an idea that we were going to advise and consult and lead sort of from behind. And there was just no way we were going to get where we wanted to go if we didn't take on real risk and, and, and jump in and, and actually do direct direct contract work. Um, and so we were able to, uh, and remember, you know, they, this was still early days. It's, for me, it felt like it was, wow, you know, we'd been at this for a year in Iraq, but this was the second year of the war. And I was, um, I knew how to do things in Iraq that others didn't understand. Um, and so we began to find opportunities to interpret those requirements into solutions and write to those, uh, demands. And we, we, we were able to, uh, gain the confidence of, uh, bigger organizations. Uh, and then most importantly, because the way the government does this work is they set up competitions. They're always going to hedge their bets. They have two or three contractors on every contract. They very rarely do sole source. So then you got to earn your way. Well, you know, earning your way in that world means getting yourself in harm's way. And I still can remember 
um, you know, choosing because uh, one of the other contractors on a contract early on had failed to uh, to, to do a, a pickup of the, at an airport in Mosul, and uh, you know it was uh, we didn't know what the aircraft capability was on that airfield and uh there was no jeppesen maps to bring that aircraft in there and i grabbed the pilot who was uh captain jawdad still remember him and i said hey captain jawdad i think we can land this plane here i mean they've been landing these bigger aircraft there i said but uh i'll get you on the phone with the guy up there he's some young you know enlisted uh soldiers (laughs) said sir i don't know really i i do know we have this type of equipment we have a we have a, a ladder that'll get up there, and we have a, uh, but we don't have this air starter thing that you think that you you need. So he says to me, he said, "Well, we'll keep the engine on and we'll keep it going." I said, "All right." And he didn't tell the flight engineer that they didn't have the equipment. I said, "All right, sir, you're ready to fly this thing, but I'm going with you, because if you're willing to do it, I'm going to be there with you." And I think a little bit of that was, you know, I wanted to be sure he actually did it. So, <laughs> so I said, so we flew down to Baghdad. And Captain John at, uh, had a, we had a big delay there because, well, sure enough, they, they had the equipment that they needed there, but it didn't work real well. So then they eventually we took off late and flew up into the sunset, flying down the Euphrates, and we land in this uh, uh, very um, uh, lights weren't working as well as they should have. And he's yelling at me, Joe, Joe, uh, do you see this air, airport? I said, yeah, they're flicking the lights down there. Captain Jawdab brought that plane down there, and we landed, and we picked up those people, and the rest was history. We won 85% of the rest of the awards on that contract, and that became a $35 million three-year contract. And the other two contractors were so left in the dust that they were complaining, and there was so much. But we we owned it because I sat in that seat with that guy, and uh, I'm sitting up there in the cockpit in the in the in the in the back seat there, and I'm telling them. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to make it up here. We got to do it. And, 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 and Jawdat, uh, you know, uh, he's still on my, uh, on my list and, and people that we keep in touch with. Um, but those, hey, those John, hey, John let me, let me interrupt one time. So, uh, I, I, I know where your business is or your, uh, your, who your, who your uh, target customers are, the niches you're involved in all that. Can you kind of explain that quickly? Cause yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know, well, with, most people Sally probably understand that. Sure. So Sally port was built around the uh, uh, taking client requirements for the U.S. Agency for International Development, Department of State, and Department of Defense, and then translating that into solutions. Most of those had to do with people in places that most others didn't want to go, whether it was Afghanistan, Djibouti, South Sudan. Uh, we did extraordinary things like build a, a facility in Duar, South Sudan, that uh, was um, one of the most primitive places you could ever imagine working, uh, building uh, secure facilities in Djibouti, uh, running uh, an air base in uh, Bishkek, uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, running a, a transportation on the air base in Qatar, running the fire services at all the bases in, in, in Iraq, um, providing security and life support services for all the consultants who did uh, the uh, uh, development work with the U.S. Agency for International Development in Iraq. Um, those were all our clients, and those were the things we did. The case where I was talking about was uh, an air transportation contract, which was one of our first, um, but that really uh, gave us the working capital to be able to do all the other things. And that goes into one of the questions I think that entrepreneurs are generally faced with, which is, you know, how do you fund your, your business? Uh, and... Um, you know, my story on that one was, uh, you know, we were able to convince 
the, the, the defense payment service that we ought to be paid in five days. And so I would get an invoice before the plane even landed, and I would have it over to the desk of the, uh, the DFAS person in Memphis, and I'd be on the phone with her the next day saying, can you please process this? And I had, I'd be paid sometimes in three business days. Wow. And I had, I, had, <laughs> I, had an air charter, I had an air charter provider that gave me a week's terms. So I was able to get, typically these are paid before you go services. And I, and I had it worked out that I was able to build my working capital off of my vendors and, and, and my clients. Now, most people don't feel comfortable with that, but it gave me an intense appreciation for the value of the working capital cycle. And it gave me a really intense understanding of how do you stretch to make things. And I do that here now in clear automation, the business that I'm running here. Uh, you know, one of the primary things that I do is I give everybody here the appreciation for the working capital cycle, how fast we finish work means how fast we can invoice. It means we get cash in the door more quickly. But I won't pay invoices just willy-nilly uh, if we don't have the cash coming in. So um, that's discipline in business. And I think what happens is entrepreneurs tend to look at it and say, well, I'll get the bank's money or I'll get somebody else's money. Um, and they'll regret that down the road if they're not uh, if they're not able to get vendors and, uh, uh, and clients to help them uh, grow their business, then they might not have the value that uh, they they think they're providing. So, sure. hey, but, hey, hey, John. So one one thing I, I got to get to. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of different things that really uh, spark some interest here. One thing is, you know, every business that's successful that I see, you know, create creates disruption and 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 builds some form of differentiation. And I've I've heard a bunch of different things on your end here already. But what what do you feel like to build your business from nothing to a couple hundred million in revenues per year? What, yeah. what, what are your key disrupt, disruptive yeah, very, uh, tools and differentiators? It was very simple, and it goes about the same life experience I had. Healthy, dis, uh, 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 healthy, healthy disrespect for bureaucracy. Uh, I understood the, the, the contractors that the, the, the government had uh, entrusted with some of this work were not uh, really efficient, and they didn't do um, – like I, I knew how we could hire and, and retain and, and deploy people much more efficiently than they did. So I was able to convince uh, one of these prime contractors that they were better off with 6% and giving me fixed price risk. And so the disruptive influence that I had was I partnered with a prime contractor as a sub. I took all the risk, I bundled it up, and I gave them a fair return as far as their, uh, as far as their business was considered. They were able to take a risk-free, not really risk-free, of course, nothing is when you're, you know, entrusting it to a sub, but they were able to entrust it to us. We took the risk in a firm price basis, and they took the 6 8%. They ended up with 6 8%. Some of my contracts, I was getting 40%. And I was able to take that iteration, uh, and it took six years, literally, until the market caught up with us. Um, there were no other subs doing what we were doing because, frankly, the uh, trust that Kurt Bergman gave us was earned trust incremental, and he was also blocked out. He wasn't winning, and so I gave him a winning solution that was disruptive. By the time we left that contract, margins across the board had dropped significantly, but I had taken um, you know, $300 million of revenue uh, at, a, at a very healthy margin rate. Uh, Kurt had won. He was promoted. Uh, and 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 given the the you know the uh, uh, the benefits of, of, of 
his work and he met his goals. They were happy at six, eight percent, but I was killing it down there and we were disruptive. We, we took most of the task orders off of that large contract um, and it really imbalanced the way that the, the contract was run by the other primes. So, no, that, definitely uh, choosing to be um, taking that that firm price, firm price risk um, it was a cho- was a choice. Uh, they wouldn't do it. Uh, we did. And that's why we won. So, John, let me ask you a question. Um, and I think this could be something that, uh, not specifically for us entrepreneurs today, I know one of the things that Sally Port Global Service became is it, it became an established, you basically established a reputation of one of the most trusted security and mission support services globally. And um, as a business, and if you kind of think about it, you started a business that created one of the most um, it was most one, one of the most trusted and had a reputation of that. And as an entrepreneur who's trying to start a business or have a business, I think in this day and age now, reputation and trust is probably one of the hardest to get. What would you say today from your shared experiences, how can we as entrepreneurs or business leaders or even business professionals create a reputation of trust? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that comes about with transparency. Uh, if you're talking about trust with your employees, everybody knows what's going on. They can see it. They understand it. And anxiety arises when they don't have information. So I think transparency in business um, is really important. And that comes from good communication, but an openness and a willingness to share. Um, and so I, I would always uh, try to impart that both in my communications and interactions down uh, through the company, but also with the leaders that I would uh, uh, would uh, work with. Uh, Nick Gross is one of those. Uh, he became sort of my right-hand man. He's doing a great job over at AAR now. He's a senior vice president running a $1.4 billion portfolio. And, uh, you know, Nick and I worked hand-in-hand, uh, hand, um, but he, uh, he had uh, uh, the same ethos that I did, which is empower and resource people to work so you can get that, um, give them, the freedom to, to fail and give them the resources to succeed. Um, and so I think that that's where that, that trust comes from on that side is you, you trust them to do their job and you resource them and you give them guidance. Um, and they, and, and, and that's where, where, where trust comes from. Um, so if you become obsessive and controlling, uh, it doesn't work. Not when you're trying to scale an organization in nine countries and uh, you've got 12 different project managers, etc. Second thing, uh, on trust going up. Trust going up has to do with credibility and it's delivering on what you say you're going to do. Um, and it's being there in the when things happen. Uh, if you get a client that gets uh, injured or killed, uh, it's being there to answer the phone, make sure that you've got all the things ready to go and you know how to handle that. That goes back to process. And I think mm. clients really need to understand you, they're in it with you, you're in it with them. I had all of those things with those clients, and I try to impart that in the clients and the relationships we have here. One of the uh, best relationships that we have at Clear Automation is with a company called L'Oreal, and we have a real, true partnership with them globally. Um, and it's been a great thing to watch as um, as we've done that uh, and built that, uh, that partnership. But that only comes from a, a transparency and, a, and, and, and a, 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 the ability to, to deliver on, on the, the tough things that they need you to do. Trust with Kurt Bergman was, you guys will be able to do this in a firm, firm fixed price basis, 
and uh, I'm not going to have to come in here and, and manage this for you. Uh, that came incrementally. First, we did it on a small job in Kuwait, and then we learned, and he, I still remember watching my son's football practice, receiving the call that he wanted to go after a, you know, a, a, a $20 million a year contract. He said, I'm not sure you guys are ready for this. It's Kurt, we can do it. I said, let's get the let's get the bid docs, let's put it together, and we can do it. And I think he, uh, you know, he 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 threw the he threw the trust factor out there, and I, I said, we'll do it together, and uh, and we and the rest was history. So, but that I think you got to earn that trust up, and you got to earn it down, and it comes through good transparent communication, um, and uh, and it comes through uh, uh, doing what you say you're going to do. Absolutely, John. I mean, and we we see this in our business as well, right? We that same transparency that you that you you want your your team members to to live with, so that they can they can buy into the, the vision, the same vision that 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 we as leaders create. Um, it's the same same thing with our customers today, and we never never knew this years ago. But gosh, if you can be transparent with your customers, the biggest customers you have to the smallest, and they understand where you're going to, and they can be part of it, so it's a it's a great you know, it's a it's a great trust builder for sure. When I, when I look at your business, you know, Sally Port, uh, you, you ran that business for, what, 10 years, John, and, and then uh, sold and, and, uh, to a larger player. And then, and then since then, uh, I've done a bunch of stuff uh, in, in, in some venture, venture uh, investing you've done and some operational investments you've, you've been a part of where you're op- helping operate businesses. Uh, and, and then, of course, your, your, your philanthropic side, the, the, the foundation you built and the awesome stuff you've done to give back to great, great uh, causes yeah. you believe in. Tell me, tell me about that. That you know, how long you ran that business? You you sold it, and then what what you've been doing since, and and where you're going next. Um, Gary, yeah, thanks. You know, for me, I I, I do want to, um, you know, that 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 experience of uh, selling your business is is a challenge um, because it's one of these things where you feel like you kind of you 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 uh, you're a little lost, let's say. Uh, you, you don't have the, the, the thing that was a, a big center to your life. You have family, you have business um, as, as core things in, in, in your life, um, if you're lucky, right? Some people, um, you know, don't have either. But I, when you really have, uh, a, you know, it's, uh, it's like losing a, a, a direction, right? And so for me, as I was looking at that, Void. Um, I thought to myself, you know, I really l- love uh, being involved in, in a service orientation. It's one of the things that kept me in the military and kept me involved. Um, and I and I so I made the decision to do the Gates Buffett Challenge, where we would um, put at least half of uh, our, our net worth or the proceeds from the transaction into a charitable foundation. I ended up actually putting 80% in there. Um, wow, that's and, awesome! And building the GPD Charitable Trust out of that, and I try to use the same uh, approach towards my uh, entrepreneurship and my f- philanthropic work. Uh, we've got uh, 20 plus grantees, and we do, uh, a, you know, about a, a million eight a year in in in, in granting, and we have uh, a lot of collaboration between and among our our granting partners. We try to get above our weight as far as what we do from a family foundation perspective because we're not like Gates um, Buffett Foundation and things like that. But but it's been a real, um, I mean, you know, I love it when I look back on five, six years of uh, students going through our Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver and the partnership we've had there, the 
West Point partnership with the Center for the Study of Civil Military Operations, the uh, program we built in, uh, to, to train journalists in Syria and report on what's happening there. Um, uh, you know, I've got a lens in the rearview mirror of now five, five six years of uh, children that we've worked with in Central and South America through our leader development program. And uh, it, it's amazing. Right? You can see these guys uh, and these people that are that are part of that um, uh, that, that are that have emerged into things that they wouldn't have been. And I see myself in their shoes um, when my, yeah, you know, like you make the difference at the right point in people's lives and they, and that, and that, that makes all the difference, right? So it's the inflection points and hopefully we're getting people at the right inflection points with the things we do. And they, and then 10, 20 years later, it, 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 it bends the arc of history a little bit. So that's all we're going for. So it's a lot of fun to do that. I love my entrepreneurial um, approach with some of this philanthropy. It scares some people, but uh, they generally react well. And, and and I try to bang on this whole thing. of We have to be collaborative because, you know, everybody wants to do good. We have to work with other people who want to do good. Work with all the people that want to do the things you want to do and don't work with the ones who don't. Right. And I, I like that. I think Frederick Douglass said that. Um, so I don't want to. Uh, but, uh, you know, that the other thing, too, I would say, you know, um, when, when you go into the the, the idea that you're going to be a, an entrepreneur for life um, and you take your 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 business and you, you then look at other businesses you want to get involved in, I will tell you that, you know, it, nobody has the Midas touch. It just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, there's uh, people tell stories about, you know, multiple successes and and they read about these things, but it's it just, it, it isn't as, uh, it, it isn't as, as easy to transport, uh, the, the things we did at Sallyport to other businesses. Um, and I find that I'm challenged in a lot of these businesses that we're invested in and working with. Uh, I have, uh, multiple businesses where we have significant equity and debt investments and some of them are going great and some of them are, are more challenging. Um, but I, all of the learning that I've had, I, I, I think can apply towards these um, towards these businesses. And, and I enjoy having my hands into that entrepreneurial, um, uh, realm and, and business ownership, um, because that's, that's really who I am. The, 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 you know, my, my goal at this point in my life, Gary, is to try to do a third, a third, a third, a third, uh, business, a third, uh, philanthropic and a third, uh, personal. And I try to keep that balance. Doesn't always happen on a weekly basis, but as I look back, uh, I try to keep myself in that, in that framework. And but how, um, how nice is that? How nice is that, John, that you can think that way compared to, you know, when we, we build these businesses, it's 99% business and half a percent family, half a percent, fa- you know, personal, whatever that might be. Right. And when you get to right. a point in your life where you can actually, you can actually, you know, build your future on, on, on a, a lot more balance doing things, you know, they're going to make a difference in the world. And uh, gosh, it, it's, it's just a lot more fun. And when you can do that and you can't, can't do any of that without, without, you know, having the ability to build something through entrepreneurship and, and That's right. a lot of grit and, and, and hard work and an idea uh-huh. in, in this free enterprise system we live in today. I'm excited that you that, actually do stuff like that. I'll be honest with you. you I mean, I know, uh, you're, you know, you take care of, uh, you know, uh, 20 plus charities. I, I would try to see what we need to do to get you into it sometime. <laughs> well, we got one out there with the Rabine Family Foundation yeah. with Joining forces, that that's right. We'll jump on board. John, with that. John's been one of the best. John, you've been, you've been one of the best partners in the Raven yeah. Foundation no, over I, the years since yeah, it started. I love, I love, so. I love Gary's uh, efforts with the Family Foundation, and it's a great pleasure to work with Cheryl and 
and Gary. Yeah, but you tell you always yeah. telling me that would for me you wouldn't give us a cent, but because Cheryl's running and you and you, and you <laughs> love you love Cheryl a lot more than me, you you keep investing. He is the hammer, no doubt about it. He's always questioning everything. Saying, Gary, yeah. I learn a lot from you too. You two are are a treasure. Uh, but you know, I want to just say one thing. Uh, you know, it's uh, on this, um, and it's an interesting subject. You know, I. I had a, a moment uh, one day. I was telling people about this. Uh, you know, that I did this Gates Buffett challenge, and whatnot. And there's another business entrepreneur, way more successful than than I, for by 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 a long stretch. And you know, he looked at me. He said, "You know what? The most beneficial thing that anybody can do is go out and build a business and employ people." Yeah. And he said, "You know, that's 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 the, the that's the most uh, valuable thing that." Uh, uh, that people can do. And, and, and I, I look at it and I thought, uh, huh, interesting. So one of the things that, that I, I, I think, um, we forget is that we are doing good, uh, by being good capitalists and, uh, we are doing, uh, the right thing, uh, for humanity by, uh, building good businesses that, uh, employ people that give them, uh, you know, growth in their lives that give them meaning and purpose uh, and, and, and that it, it give them a sense that they belong to something. And it, if you can do that, you've changed lives. And I didn't really, I had to kind of reframe my thought on this and, you know, and I, and I realized he, he's absolutely right. And I underappreciated the things that we've done as business owners, Gary, uh, that provide people with opportunity, um, and that provide them with real purpose and meaning. And, and that's, that's one of the things I think we lose in society when we lose the appreciation for the benefit of work and we lose the, 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 the values that drive our society, which is free market capitalism. We have to keep those. And that's, that's one of the things that I believe in strongly. And I, I, you know, that is truthfully the most charitable thing you can do. Yeah. Give someone purpose in life through employment. John, John, you're, you know, I, 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 I believe the same. I've, I've, I've gained that understanding much more as, as I, as we've, our teammates have grown in our organizations and we see so much great things and fam- families and leaders in our businesses that, you know, rise to the next level and they, and they, they're able to benefit financially from that along with, ev- with us and everybody. And, and, you know, it's really, it's about the dignity of work and the dignity, dignity of great work, right? Where somebody's right. passionate, inspired every day to go home and they're, they're a joy to be around with their families. Um, they're, 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 they're challenged, but yet they're, they're rewarded for the challenge. And it's a, it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and, and I just don't, you know, I, I travel, you know, you, you travel the world more than I do. And I'm trying to travel the world a little more as I get a little older. And, and gosh, I, I, I haven't seen anywhere in the world where the opportunities have been as abundant as, as our country. And, and gosh, I want to, you know, my, one of my goals in life is to do what, invest as much as I can to make sure it stays this way. I, and, and, and I know you're doing that and I, I try to do the same on mine. I know you so. do. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, you know what? Uh, let's finish up with one thing that we missed. And John's got an amazing family. Uh, his kids, he's got two amazing kids that I love uh, that, that are going to be leaders just like him and, and, uh, and their mother and uh, Francis. And like I said, I, just go, go into that just a little bit, John, because I, I think we missed that. And it's a huge part yeah, of Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Gary, you've been a part of our family. And, uh, you know, and I, I think um, important to note, you know, I, I, we, I, I'm um, – my my ex-wife Gary uh, Francis and I are no longer married, but it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that she and I have a very very collaborative relationship, uh, and that we've stayed very centered on our values around what we believe 
Um, you know, it may not work out personally for a whole series of reasons, but in, uh, in our lives, we've stayed, um, focused on, on being good, uh, to each other, uh, and caring about each other's happiness. Um, and I think, you know, for me, a joke, I had a, I had a great personal divorce and a bad business divorce. Um, and, uh, you know, in life, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta look at how you, how you work in partnerships and business and, um, and they're, they're, they're not too dissimilar. Uh, and except for you have, you, you go into a business relationship with a partner and you have an operating agreement and a shareholder agreement and people underestimate the importance of those things, but you go into life in a marriage. And even if you have a prenup, it's a lot different. Um, so you end up in, in a family relationship, uh, that's gotta be based on love and appreciation for the other person. And I know that's, that's what Francis and I have done well with, and that's what we've translated, translated to kids. And, and, and Gary, watching you and Cheryl go through uh, the health issues that Cheryl's had and uh, being part of watching how your family came together has been inspirational. Uh, you know, and I, uh, Jack and Sarah look up to you and what the, um, and, and, and your family and, uh, and, and you guys have been an inspiration. But, you know, being a, being a parent uh, doesn't end, uh, as you know, uh, and, uh, it, but it's the same sort of thing, right? You give the kids... You, you empower them and give them resources to succeed and uh, let them fail if they um, if, if, if they have to without breaking their neck, hopefully. Um, but um, but they learn from those opportunities. And and, uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm uh, may not be the traditional outcome, but I'm very proud of where I am with my family. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> I see in your kids. <clears throat> senior kids, something that uh, you don't always see in, in kids every day in our generation or this generation. It's grit. Your kids, your your kids definitely have this uh, you know, grit to them, where they're gonna they're gonna be successful. They're gonna they're they're gonna be leaders, and you know they've watched you know you and their mom Francis you know lead at anything yeah. they do, and and they've got grit that you don't normally don't always have in, in society today or any society. And, and hey, Gary, I think it's fun to I watch. think grit grit as a parent turns turns into stubborn. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's what I call it. Stubborn. They're stubborn. Good deal. Well, um, well, I, first, I first off, man, John, uh, we really appreciate it. just a quick wrap up thoughts for our, uh, audience, you know, calling the Quentin James thoughts of, uh, of our true mentor understanding as some of the things that John has said, uh, you know, having the eagerness of burning desire to win early is vital. Coaches and mentors can change your life. Have an idea and adapt with it. Transparency and execution is important for a trusted business. The Midas touch, as we heard many times, is possibly more likely a myth, but the most beneficial and the most valuable thing is to create a business and employ people. John, we really appreciate your time and all that you do and the legacy that you give um, we thank you so much for just instilling to us, and I'm just excited to meet you. I'm going to give you a big hug, man, and I'm going to salute you when I see you, man. <laughs> You're going to learn to salute by then. Huh? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Quentin. John, thanks, Gary. love you, buddy. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate it, and uh, you have an awesome day. If you enjoy this show, please share it with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Then I became the CEO man We're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down highway Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man